So now we'll be talking about clinical anatomy of the back. Either that or we'll be talking about somebody scratching themselves. Three to four patients visit a GP's office complaining about back pain almost every single day. In fact, back pain is only second to the common cold in terms of ER visits. If you look at all the statistics from the states, in fact, one of the reasons why we have such a high index of addiction in the United States now to, prescrip to prescription pain meds is one, people have a lot, one of the most common pains they come with is chronic back pain and they get treatment for that and some of that back pain is intense and two, those drugs are enjoyable as well. So it, you know, it's dual effect. About 10% of the population is going to have back pain at some point or another. So if you look around, maybe one person here has it. Um, about 80% of us will have experienced it in one form or another. Either we provoked it or we acquired it, we would have had it at some point. The segment that is mostly involved is lower back pain. Um, it's going to start from about age 30 onwards. Recently, we've noticed that we have people with chronic lower back pain at a much younger age. Um, we are talking about 11, 12, especially in the tropics and especially in places that were affected by chikungunya. This island was one of those places that was affected by, um, by that virus. Um, and we have several people, including me, um, who still have back issues and pain issues as a result. Um, and it's extremely difficult and it can be extremely expensive and sometimes it can be difficult to manage because you never want to underestimate the amount of pain the patient is feeling and you want to actually help them. And sometimes, you know, they can take advantage of that and you end up giving them, you know, the good stuff. It costs governments lots of money. It costs states, it costs cities lots of money. In fact, it's that it reaches the billions. So chiropractors, that's why they drive nice cars. Now, when you look at back pain, you want to, imme you want to immediately classify back pain um, according to the structures that can actually produce pain or structures that are insensitive to pain. The nucleus pulposus, your, verte your vertebral bone itself, the ligamentum flavum, your dural sheath, all of these are pain insensitive structures because they, are, they have no innervation. They're not innervated. Pain producers are going to be your facet joints, your nerve roots, which give us that classic sciatica that everyone talks about your ventral dural sheet, the annulus fibrosus of the IV disc, the posterior longitudinal ligament, for example, is one of those pain producers, and the muscles or paravertebral muscles that cause lumbago. That's a word we haven't heard since the 1990s. They stopped selling devices to prevent them. So um, it's now just muscle pain, but you'll still hear lumbago every now and then. Let's take a look at the normal architecture of a vertebra, of vertebral bone over here. We can see spinous processes, we see our articulating facets, transverse processes in a body with a vertebral canal that looks nice and clean. Compare that to one which has age-related degenerative changes, we'll notice the architecture has changed completely. We no longer have that smooth cortical appearance, instead it's irregular, it's rough, it's bumpy. It's laden with these projections, these abnormal bony growths called osteophytes. These osteophytes can cause a lot of back pain because as they grow, they protrude into the surrounding soft tissue. And that surrounding soft tissue is usually well innervated and is going to hurt. Um, worse yet, those projections can grow inside of the vertebral canal and compress the spinal cord. So if we take a look at what's a fairly normal vertebrae on top compared to one on the bottom, we'll notice that the canal 
is considerably narrower. What do we call the narrowing of that vertebral canal? Stenosis. So now when we have stenosis, how do we treat that? Yes, the laminectomy. So there's our laminectomy where we will cut through the lamina of our bone. Now, a lot of us had a lot of confusion as to what you're cutting and what you're removing. Now, clearly from that segment, we'll be removing the spinous process as well. Yeah. Based on how large that laminectomy segment is, because by cutting the laminae and removing that segment of bone, you're taking out the posterior aspect of the vertebral arch. What lies projecting posteriorly on the vertebral arch, the spinous process. So effectively, it will be moved. Now, in multiple choice questions, they will try not to confuse you by giving you options that are too, you know, that are vague. The ligament that is most likely involved in a laminectomy is your ligamentum flavum because it is related directly to the lamina of the bone. So that is the one we, you focus on and the one we'll focus on in those testing scenarios. Now we're moving on to facet joints, also called zygopophyseal joints. I'm going to call them facet joints for this lecture because zygopophyseal is just too much to say. These are synovial plane joints. And being synovial joints, it means that they have hyaline cartilage surrounding them, um, where the, the articulating um, surfaces are. It also means there's a joint capsule, and it also means there's synovial fluid. Every synovial joint in the body is prone to degenerative changes or age-related changes. These are not spared. So because of the fact that you can develop arthritis in these, these can be some of your major pain producers. But one of the reasons why they produce so much pain isn't because of the arrangement of the joints themselves, it's the arrangement of the innervation. Because the facet joints are going to be um, made of, or they comprise of, the superior and inferior articulating surfaces of the vertebrae, effectively what we have is each joint gets a nerve from the spinal segment above and the spinal segment below. So now instead of having one nerve transmitting that pain, we have two, so the pain, the intensity obviously increases. So that is one of the particularities with the, with the facet joints. So it can cause facet joint articulite, um, arthritis. Sorry. Now, in terms of their biomechanical function, these are going to basically guide the vertebrae and limit the amount of movement that they have. So for example, in your lumbar spine, um, those joints function to protect the motion of that particular segment from anterior sharing forces, so it prevents them from slipping past each other and moving anteriorly. And you would want that in your lumbar spine based on how the curvatures are, are arranged and how weight is transferred through those. They can also prevent excessive rotation as well in some instances because they sort of lock the vertebrae into place and they allow them and they prevent them from wobbling. You combine that with ligamentous support and muscles, you have a relatively stable column which still has enough flexibility to allow for movement. So it's a wonderful arrangement. But again, the fact that these are synovial joints, they are going to degenerate over time. They will suffer osteoarthritic changes. And just like um, other joints, other synovial joints in the body, for example, the knee, when that cartilage starts breaking down, the tiny fragments of the cartilage, they wind up in the synovial fluid. That immediately stimulates the body to start secreting more fluid because immediately the body thinks the reason why the cartilage is breaking is because you have no lubrication. So you try to produce more fluid. Now, that fluid is contained within the synovium or in, inside of that joint capsule. The joint capsule can then begin to expand, and as it expands, it's going, by mass effect, 
it's going to start compressing structures around it. So these tiny joints with that difficult name are some of the major pain producers we have in the body. Now, if I were to ask you, um, which part of the spinal nerve is going to innervate the facet joints, what would you say? The dorsal what? Dorsal ramus. Excellent. Are we all in agreement with that? Sweet. Postural analysis. So, good posture is relative. Based on where you are, you know, walking upright is cool or walking upright can look awkward. However, things that affect posture are never going to change. Inheritance. I walk like my dad all day long. I can't change that. Your habit. How you carry yourself. Do you walk tall? Do you hunch over? Do you have any disease processes occurring like osteoporosis? These factors can affect the way you stand, the way you move. Even muscle pain. We're not even talking about bony abnormality. No, muscle pain can actually change your posture. The people with the bad backs usually bend over and walk like this. Good posture is going to require ligamentous support. And ligamentous support is primarily responsible for maintaining posture. The muscles around it must provide adequate muscle tone. But we have to remember these muscles aren't constantly acting. They act involuntarily. We don't even know when they kick in. You know, we change position. Some are going to constrict. Some are going to relax. And they're able to do that because there isn't a single nerve innervating those muscle bellies. You remember those erector spinae and so on, those deep intrinsic or true um, back muscles. They're all innervated by dorsal rami at their corresponding spinal segments. So they're able to segmentally contract and relax to adapt to postural changes. So when you're on that mountain bike doing 32 kilometers an hour downhill, you lean one way, the opposite side is going to start contracting to start correcting and maintaining the alignment of the spine so you don't have too much slippage. Very cool mechanism. So the muscles, those deep muscles are going to provide minimum input and they utilize minimum energy while doing their work so we don't waste muscles on energy on muscles that do very little. It's the efficiency of biology. Clinical conditions that can affect posture, scoliosis, kyphosis, and lordosis. And we need to know this for our exam. Trust me, they are going to show up multiple times. In order to understand them a little bit better, we should revisit what the normal curvatures of the vertebral column or spinal column look like. In adults, we have four of them, and like we said um, yesterday, we have a cervical, thoracic, lumbar, and sacral segment. Um, the thoracic and sacral segments are going to be concave anteriorly, and posteriorly, you're going to have the lumbar segments curving. Um, the cervical and lumbar segments, they curve posteriorly. In the fetus, the thoracic and sacral um, curvatures are your primary curvatures, and the lumbar and cervical and lumbar are secondary, and these develop later on at about one year or when that baby starts walking around and can bear the weight of his own head. Revisiting again, we know what kyphosis looks like, and we were able to define it, that abnormal increase in thoracic curvature. It can be secondary, in some instances, it can be secondary to vertebral body infection from tuberculosis. Um, this is one of the extrapulmonary forms of tuberculosis where it leaves the lungs and it's transmitted hematogenously, transmitted through blood to the adjacent vertebrae. In that instance, it's going to create an infective focus in the vertebrae, 
um, start breaking it down, causing this caseous necrosis around it. And if it affects more than two of those vertebrae consecutively, then it's going to start to affect the IV disc. Once one infected focus in one vertebrae is only going to affect um, just the vertebrae itself. And the reason why two consecutive will destroy the IV disc is because the IV discs are avascular. They, they do have nerves, like we just mentioned, the annulus fibrosis will have nerve supply, but they don't have their own blood supply. They are entirely dependent on um, nutrients from diffusion from the surrounding connective tissue and, and so on. So if these bones break down and they become necrotic, then eventually that IV disc is left there by itself to decay. It also becomes necrotic as well. So we're looking at a condition called Potts disease. Yeah? And it's something that you should be familiar with. Extrapulmonary form of tuberculosis that affects the vertebral column. If it affects one, the IV disc beneath it is usually spared. If it affects two consecutive, the disc between suffers necrosis as well. Caseous necrosis. Norlordosis, a.k.a. the swayback, is the abnormal curvature, is an, also an abnormal curvature, and it can occur physiologically in pregnancy, as you all know, and in obese people as well. I don't think we should have any issues with that, right? That image on top, what are we showing over here? On this image over here. Excellent. And the other one? Beautiful. Now, with the spine affected by kyphosis, for example, let's say we have that Potts disease. The center of the vertebrae, where you have all your trabecular structure, is going to break down, and it leaves this large, hollow cavity. Now, you might be wondering, can you repair that? Your answer is yes. A procedure called a vertebroplasty is going to be done, and this is basically taking a needle, sending it into the vertebral body, putting in a tube, and pumping in a bony cement in there to replace the continuity. So it's going to, you're just filling that void with that cement. It's going to harden over time, and you get back the strength of the bone. Yeah? So it's a very simple procedure that they do now. It can be done with the patients with kyphosis, especially when you have anterior wedging of those bones in that thoracic segment. Here we have scoliosis. We've seen this before, and we can see from our x-ray, we have an exaggerated lateral curvature of the spinal, the spinal vertebral column. Or normal vertebral column should be nice and linear, whereas in the scoliosis, we're going to see it deviating off to one side. Very common in young adults, extremely common in women, and according to our colleague from yesterday, it's because of the heavy purses. <laughs> I'm never forgetting you, dude. Let's take a look at this case. Tell us what you think. So we have a case of congenital scoliosis. Now, let's declare, congenital scoliosis has nothing to do with that purse again. This person was born with that condition. What manifestation we expect to see in the vertebral column associated with congenital scoliosis? Do you expect all the vertebrae to look the same? What do you think happens? The brother is saying hemivertebrae. 
And I'm assuming by hemivertebrae he is referring to only one half of that vertebrae developing. So as a result, you have one half developed, the other half absent. The vertebrae on top of it are going to actually lean towards that side where you have nothing. Now this one, it might be a little bit difficult to actually identify the defect, but we can see where we've lost that linear continuity of the vertebral column. And if we look a little bit closer, we can start recognizing where we actually have our wedging. So if we start counting down, we can see this one has a huge tilt in it, so it means our wedge is located somewhere in that region over here. You notice they all more, they're all more or less straight, except for when we get to that region. So if we light it up, there we can see where we have our hemivertebrae. Now, how do we recognize this? What were we looking for? We're not looking for the hemivertebrae immediately. What we're looking for are the features of the bone. And the ones that we can't identify, that's what we're going to use to diagnose. So we'll start by looking for spinous processes. They're not super, super clear. Let's see. We have a couple of them. You can see little shadows here and there. We look at our pedicles. We start seeing all of our pedicles off to one side. But when we start counting down, you notice that over here, the pedicles are missing. So the fact that we're missing the pedicles off on one side means we don't have one side of that vertebrae developing. And that's your classic hemivertebrae over there. Understood? Nice. So we'll remember this case because it's, it has a clinical significance. It showed up in your lecture. They gave you images. What, are the, what is the likelihood that they'll give it to you again? Only God knows. Back to that scoliosis again. It's like herpes, it's coming back every couple minutes to haunt us, you know. So here we have a spine affected by scoliosis. <laughs> this, this happens when I'm exhausted. Um, I get sarcastic. And we have a spine affected by scoliosis, and again, we can see that lateralization of the, the, spinal co the spi vertebral column. You'll notice in the image that we have here with our subject over here, that even, even the arrangement of the ribs starts changing to accommodate for that exaggerated curvature. If the bony skeleton of the thorax changes conformity, that, conf that change is going to be translated to the organs on the inside. So at some point, it can start compressing thoracic structures. Yeah? So maybe your lungs are not going to be able to expand as, properly as, uh, as normally as they would. Yeah? Back to clinical embryology, the stuff we all love. Um, the dark side. So here we're looking at spina bifida occulta, and you would have learned about spina bifida occulta from Dr. Bubb's lecture, which I saw, and it was awesome. Um, in this case, you have a failure of fusion of the embryonic halves of the neural arch, and as a result, there's a space or a defect left, a discontinuity left in that neural arch. The outward manifestation is that tiny tuft of hair um, in the affected area. I've been throwing this out for years asking people to find out what causes it and I can't find a cause yet and no one has. If you come across anything, an interesting paper or an article, send it over. I'd love to read it and see what it says. But we're not focusing on that. We are going to take a look at our bony defect. So we're looking at the vertebral column and we're looking at the lumbar spine in particular. Um, usually this occurs in the lumbar spine. However, it can occur anywhere along the spinal, the, the um, the vertebral column, but it is most common in your lumbar spine, lower lumbar segments to be specific. So we notice on our previous vertebrae, we we're able to see spinous processes. But as we come further down, we notice instead of having a spinous process, we have a huge discontinuity in between them. 
this isn't going to affect that patient. That patient will be relatively asymptomatic and um, will probably go through most of his or her life thinking that they are part bunny for having a nice little tail over them. Nothing different about it. Yeah? Now we compare that to the other form. What form are we looking at here, guys? So someone's saying myelomeningocele. Excellent. And if we think about how they combined all those words, the fact that we have seal in it means it's a sac protruding with fluid. The meningo means it has meninges. And the myelo means you have neural elements. So you may have spinal nerves or you may have spinal cord or nerve roots. Yeah? Now, with this one, the defect is obvious. You can see it immediately on the skin. And if you don't notice that, believe me, you have a bigger problem and you need to change careers. You don't need to do x-rays for this one. You can do an ultrasound, as you can see over there. And the ultrasound will give you a good idea as to what the contents of that sac are, what's in there. Do you have an abnormal blood vessel? Is it just nerve roots? And on an ultrasound, blood vessels and nerves have a very distinct appearance. Now we're looking at the lumbar spine. This is a T2-weighted T2 MRI. Now we'll discuss what T1 versus T2-weighted MRI means and how that affects the price of rice in China. The T2-weighted MRIs are excellent for visualizing fluid. So you'll notice that your CSF shows up this bright white color. The T1s are better for soft tissue and fatty tissue. So when we're looking at um, fatty tissue, you would want to do that one. Soft tissue, you'd want to do T1. Anything where you suspect fluid involvement, you will do T2-weighted MRI. And if we look at this T2-weighted MRI, it's nicely labeled for us so we can identify everything we want. But once we find our thoracic vertebrae, or T11, T12, we know L1's beneath it, we have L2. At the level of L1, L2, somewhere just around the level of the intervertebral disc is where you have the conus medullaris. All these fibers that are extending downwards are cauda equina fibers. They're all located in the dural sac. Where does that dural sac end again? Excellent. So it's going to all go all the way down to S2 over here. This is where we have S1. So now we know our landmarks. That nice dark line we see on the anterior aspect of the vertebrae, which ligament does that correspond to? Excellent. Posterior, um, anterior longitudinal. This one would be posterior. And what are these again? That wasn't clear enough. Try again. Someone shout the answer out. Imagine you won the lottery but instead you're shouting the answer out. What do you say? Ligamentum flavum. Thank you. So if the ligamentum flavum are here, it means the lamina are just above it. Yeah? So we can make those relationships now. Your supraspinous ligament would be that beautiful dark line running all the way at the back, and the interspinous ligaments would be the ones that we see in between the, spi uh, spinous, the interspinous intervals. Are we all okay with that? Excellent. So T2... The easiest way to remember the modalities, T1 versus T2. Um, water's a fluid. H2O is water. T2. And make simple word associations to not complicate their lives. What's the function of the IV disc? Hmm? Someone said shock absorption exclusively. What else? How does one vertebrae adhere to the next one? the IV disc. So aside from absorbing the shock, it is also going to adhere one vertebrae to the next. Yeah? 
If you try separating them on fresh tissue, it's extremely difficult. It's well integrated into the bone. In fact, it shares continuity with the periosteum of the bone as well, as they, they're made up of similar fibers. Here we are looking at the composition of that disc. We can see the annulus fibrosus, like the name suggests, is made up of multiple concentric lamellae of fibers which surround a center filled with nucleus pulposus. Um, questions thrown out. Um, the nucleus pulposus, it's an embryological, it's a derivative of which embryological structure? Amen. No, not neural crest cells, notochord. <laughs> Got you. <laughs> yeah. How about the duramater? No, mesenchyme. So, you know, now, if we know everything is neural crest cells, what we learn are the exceptions. Save the brain power. Don't learn every single one. Learn the exceptions. So if you have six exceptions, everything else is neural crest cells. You get it. Nice. Work smart, not hard. So <laughs> here's our, vertebral, uh, our IV disc from a lateral view. We can see the annulus fibrosus on the outside with the nucleus pulposus on the inside. Now, usually these can take about 5 kg of force directly on each one of them. After 5 kg, they begin to compress and change shape. So they're strong enough that they're able to make bear weight, yet flexible enough that they're able to stretch and allow movement. So whenever compressive forces act on them, like we jump off the wall, for example, these are going to compress and absorb some of the shock. As they compress, that force is going to be deviated laterally or outwards and not sent further up. So the force is going to progressively decrease as you move up the column so that it doesn't shatter the brain on the way up. If it were made of a rigid, if it were one rigid column, forces would transfer immediately upwards and would damage structures located superiorly. Concerning herniated discs, this is a term we want you to use. Slip disc is what your mechanic says. You will say herniated disc because technically there is no such thing as a slip disc. We've seen we can have anterior displacement of the, of the vertebral body, and we describe that as spondylolisthesis. In this case, the disc, because it is so well adhered, generally does not move. If, it, if, it, if it, there's a force large enough to break that disc and move it off, then it's probably large enough to kill you at the same point, so the slip disc is not going to be a problem. Now, whenever the nucleus pulposus herniates, there's a peculiarity about the direction in which it's going to move. And that pe peculiarity is going to be dictated or influenced by the shape of the posterior longitudinal ligament. Um, yesterday in our lecture, we described both of these ligaments as having more spanning more or less the same area. Um, one runs anterior to the vertebral um, body, the other one posterior. The difference would be um, the anterior one has its wider part at the base and posterior has its wider part towards the head. So by having a thin tapered part down towards the lumbar segments, whenever that nucleus pulposus herniates, it's immediately going to collide with the posterior longitudinal ligament, so it cannot um, herniate directly posterior. Instead, it has to move off to one of the sides. So that's the reason why whenever you have disc herniation, it's usually affecting one side as opposed to both of them. Yeah? And it's because of the arrangement of that ligament. Um, we understand that? Hearing a lot of silence. Not too. Nice. Say yes. Come on. 
Now we have a 58-year-old man. He has a sudden onset of low back pain radiating to his lower limbs, which started after lifting his three-year-old grandson, who I am going to assume weighs 250 pounds. Now looking at our images, can we immediately identify the defect even if it didn't have dotted lines around it? Yes, we can. What between what vertebrae are we finding that herniated disc? Say it with a little more confidence. L4, L5, convince me. Aside from that, convince me. We can see the sacrum. Thank you, young brother. So once we find our sacrum, if we had, if it were higher up, closer to the thoracic segment, we would have seen a thoracic vertebrae, we would have seen rib shadows. We see a very prominent sacrum. In fact, we can actually see the sacral promontory over here. So that's your sacral promontory right there. That's L5, L L4, and there's your herniated disc. Which part of the spinal cord is this compressing? Somewhere along the cauda equina. What is the cauda equina made of? Yes, nerves, we know that. Which nerves? Nerves that go where? Sacral, some lumbar as well, yeah? So that's where we'll be compressing in this case. If we count up, we'll notice that we have from L4, we have L3 and L2 over here. What do we expect to see somewhere around this region, around L1, L2? The conus medullaris. Yeah? Everything beyond that would be cauda equina. On the image on the opposite side of the screen, um, anyone wants to guess what type of modality that is? The bone still looks gray. Another MRI, and you can see a whole ton of soft tissue detail. In this case, we can actually see where the nucleus pulposus has herniated into the vertebral canal and is actually compressing the spinal cord, which is represented by all these tiny dots. On your computer screen, I want you to take a look at that a little bit better. All those dots we see are likely pathways, those longitudinal pathways running up and down in the spine. Isn't that cool? Now, which nerve would have been herniated between that L4, L5 segment? Why? Everyone says L5. I agree, but why? L4 comes off above, yes, and also you have that increase in vertebral height. So L4 is going to exit before the IV disc, or just above the IV disc, or in this case, just above the herniation. So this is a rule we can carry with us from now on. When we're looking at that lumbar segment, the nerve that's affected will be corresponding to the vertebrae below the herniation. Can we appreciate that? Sweet. So now we're looking at this. So between C2 and C3, how does the spinal nerves exit in the cervical column again? Above their corresponding vertebrae. So if we have a herniation occurring between C2 and C3, which nerve is going to be affected? C3, wonderful. How about between T4 and T5? T4, once we get there, once we get lower down, because of that increased height, that's where the relationship changes. So between L4 and L5, we have L5 being compressed while L4 is allowed to exit freely. Now we move on to the blood supply. We're revisiting this again. In terms of clinical anatomy, when you'll need to know this whenever you have a procedure that involves 
temporarily compromising the blood supply of the spinal cord. Um, this can range from anything from clamping the aorta to repair a dissecting aneurysm or to removing plaques somewhere, I guess. But a, but a good knowledge of the blood supply here can make you a little bit more comfortable. And we said that the primary blood supply is going to come from your anterior spinal and two posterior spinal arteries which come from your vertebrals up above. Those vertebrals eventually would have come from the subclavian. Um, you have your thyrocervical and costocervical trunks um, ascending from the subclavian. Now, um, you have feeder arteries, which are your segmental spinal arteries. We said these are found at every single level, and they enter the IV foramina as the nerve leaves. And then you have segmental medullary arteries, which enter at specific segments. They number about 8 to 10, and they're going to be reinforcing those segments because of their increased cellular demands. Now, generally, um, you'll see that artery of Adam Kiewitz there. Um, that one, like we said before, is one of the arteries that everyone names first. But I've been checking it out, and if you clamp it, nothing happens. I've been reading about it. It's important because the creationist committee put it there. But because of that, because of very effective collateral circulation, even if that artery is compromised, you'll still be able to function normally because you have so many collateral pathways. There's always a redundancy to prevent, you know, prevent spinal cord death. Now back to that venous plexus of Batson again. Remember we said we had two of them, and they were valveless. The external plexus is going to be found running on the surface of the vertebrae, while the internal plexus is running on the inside of the vertebral canal. It's Usually, when you read about its clinical significance, they'll tell you it has important communications between pelvic organs, and it can communicate all the way up to the dural sinuses. Imagine you have a pelvic metastatic process, and you have somehow have a few cells getting into this plexus of Batson. It's first going to go to the bony column, because that's where the bones are. But it, because of those communications, and even because of communications with your zygos veins, it can keep going further up and make their way up, and eventually get to the dural system. The dural syst um, sinuses. And once it's in the CNS, we all know what happens. So, these are, you've noticed you've seen them multiple times, we've mentioned them multiple times, so these are system of veins that you want to be very familiar with. And again, they can show up in testing scenarios. Going back to this again, we are looking at the changes in the position of the spinal cord according to age. We want you to remember that at eight weeks, it occupies the entire um, length of the canal. At 24 weeks, um, the conus will be found just about S1. At newborn age, that spinal cord is going to be a little bit higher because the baby would have grown a lot, the tissue would have proliferated. It goes all the way down to about L3. And then in the adult, eventually, it's somewhere between L1, L2. Now, we talked about the lumbar puncture already and how we do an effective lumbar puncture, and I'm, I'm, all, I'm sure that we remember all the layers that we go through. Um, one of the things we like to mention here, um, whenever we're doing that lumbar puncture to either access the CSF, or let's say we're putting anesthetics in there or steroids in there, it's really important that the molecular weight of that is really high. You want something heavy simply because if it's too light, it's going to float and ascend, and you may paralyze a segment you don't want to. So you use high molecular weight drugs that will sink, and it will, it will anesthetize everything below that level. 
do we need to go over the procedure for an LP again, or are we, are we all good with that? I'm sure you'll watch the YouTube video about this at some point or another. Um, my only gripe with this is the pop. You know, um, everyone says you feel the pop or you hear the pop, but what you feel is the tissue giving way. You know, um, you won't hear that noise. You'll f that noise you hear is when, the, the ligam when you actually go through the ligamentum flavum. The reason why you flex them or you put them in that fetal position is so you can stretch it, make it thinner, make it easier for that needle to penetrate. You'll feel when the tissue gives way to the needle, but you will not hear that pop. You will feel it, you know, you'll feel it compromised. Lumbar epidural anesthesia. Um, something done commonly on, it can be used for pain relief. It's used very frequently during deliveries to control pain and so on. Um, you can put in steroids for chronic back issues. Um, you do run the risk of injecting that anesthetic into the subarachnoid space. And based on the molecular weight of that, again, you can have it circulating and it can cause some problems, so be very careful. But generally what we'll be doing is inserting a needle into the epidural space, which is outside of the duramater, and remember the contents. We're going to be epidural fat, spinal nerves, and the plexus. With the lumbar epidural anesthesia, it's quite a simple procedure. In this case, they're putting some steroids into the epidural space. I'm going to assume, based on the fact that she has bike shorts on, she um, probably worked out too much in the gym or something. <laughs> so again, what, what we'll be doing is getting into that epidural space, which is just outside the dura. So the ligament that you'll be piercing just before you get there is going to be the ligamentum flavum. Yeah? If you take... The midline approach, you will likely go through interspinous and supraspinous before you get to ligamentum flavum. Paramedian, you're going to skip the supraspinous, go through the base of the interspinous, pop the ligamentum flavum, you're in the epidural space. If you go any lower, you'll eventually end up in subarachnoid space where you have CSF. Sacral caudal anesthesia is another procedure that we do often. Um, this one it actually provides a lot of um, reliable and very effective um, anesthesia for many procedures just, um, just around the lumbar region. Um, steroids are the most common things you'll inject in there, followed by anesthetics. The landmark would be the sacral hiatus. The sacral hiatus shows up as those two sacral dimples that we mentioned yesterday. Anyone looked for sacral dimples yet? You did? Nice. <laughs> okay. When we do um, the sacral anesthesia, there is an immediate um, decreased risk of entering the subarachnoid space. Why? Why do we have a decreased risk of entering the subarachnoid space? Anyone wants to tell me where? Well, one, we don't have arachnoid matter. What else? Where does the dural sac end? S2, so you have a decreased risk, right? Logic. That is the end of our lecture. Um, it was my honest pleasure. I apologize for, the, for yesterday. I was explaining to some of my students why I was distracted. Um, but again, my sincerest apologies. I hope you got this lecture, guys, and you're, it's able to help you. I think one of the last lectures in your series is an introduction to radiology lecture that you'll be getting later on, if I'm not mistaken. In that one, you'll be able to consolidate everything that you learn. But over time, you will be able to master this and you'll be able to see images a lot better than many of us here. So 
I wish everyone luck. Yeah?